1: Mr. Mayor, do you acknowledge that you made false
2: statements?
3: That is a total you, lie. Why don't you go put yourself
2: somewhere yeah, there? But now? you acknowledged it. Why did
3: you not, did fight not fight that not in the court? I acknowledge it. That was a stipulation that's done in every lawsuit, not for the purposes of truth. You did not, you did not contest now, it. You had the opportunity to
0: fight that. Wrong. Why? I did not because I had to move on to legal issues.
1: Rudy Giuliani surrendering today in Atlanta, now part of Trump's rogues gallery of Georgia co-defendants who are being booked, fingerprinted, and getting lovely mugshots to place above their mantles, courtesy of the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. Also tonight, stunning news out of Russia, as Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man who led the June mutiny against the Kremlin, is now believed to be dead in a plane crash. Plus... Debate night in Milwaukee. Trump won't be there. Can any of the others prove that they are a legitimate threat to his renomination? Well, we begin tonight, however, with the truth and consequences. The truth being that there was no widespread voter fraud during the 2020 presidential election and that the actions taken by Donald Trump and his gang took a long walk off a short pier going from the legal to the criminal. That leads us to the consequences that we are now seeing play out this week as one by one, the 19 co-defendants in the Georgia case are making their way to a Fulton County jail to surrender. As you can see, in place of some of the headshots that we've been showing you since the indictment came out, are the mugshots of those who have already been booked. Trump's headshot remains on that graphic, but likely not for long, as he is expected to turn himself in tomorrow night. In prime time, to put on a performance for his MAGA followers to make it seem like he is the martyr he claims to be, to get his followers, of course, to send him money. But let's just deal in truth for a minute, shall we? Because no matter what kind of performance Trump puts on for his followers tomorrow night, this has to be legitimately distressing for the man who has gotten away with so much throughout his life and who has rarely had to truly face the consequences. Tomorrow night, during this very hour. Donald Trump will be humbled before the world as he finds out how humiliating it is to go from being the leader of the free world to being photographed like a common criminal. No matter how much bravado he displays, there is no way that Trump wants to join this cast of previously famous politicians who in some cases smiled for the camera as they too faced up to their crimes. For a lot of these people who exist on the elite side of American politics— Booking day is likely both a shocking and a sobering moment. And it may be a wake-up call to just how real the consequences are in the criminal justice system. Trump's co-defendants could very well be looking at prison sentences for following the direction of a man who likely could care less what happens to them as long as it keeps him out of prison. Don't believe for a second that Trump wouldn't throw every single one of them under the bus to save his own behind. We've already seen reporting to that effect. And if it wasn't clear enough, Trump's defense lawyer started laying that groundwork earlier this month, putting the blame on everybody but Trump.
0: Everything that President Trump did was with the advice of lawyers and counsel. What he's being indicted for ultimately is following legal advice from an esteemed scholar, John Eastman, that he could petition his own vice president and ask his vice president to pause the voting on January 6th to give the states one last chance to certify
1: or re-audit. Joining me now is Harry Littman, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General and host of the Talking Feds podcast, and Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here. Lisa, I do want to start with you. Um, you know, watching Rudy Giuliani come out today and do that sort of, it was almost sort of hysteria because, you know, he doesn't normally talk anymore to normal news outlets. And so getting the chance to ask him questions, Vaughn Hilliard shooting some questions at him, um, he seemed rattled to me, um, having watched Giuliani when he was mayor. Um, there's his mugshot. It's got to be a humbling moment to go from being a, a U.S. attorney uh, to being mayor to being that, right? C- photographed in that way. Talk a little bit about it because I can only imagine how sobering it is. This is date. This is, it, it gets real. This is when it gets real when you take that mugshot.
4: It totally gets real. And there's no place, Joy, that's more real than the Rice Street Jail in Fulton County, Georgia, where multiple people have died in custody already this year. This is a place where conditions are, to use a word that has become infamous, deplorable, frankly. Mm -hmm. And for Giuliani to have to walk through that jail and be processed like anybody else in Fulton County, Georgia, had to not only be humbling, but humiliating. It's a sad it's a if if the story were to end here and it won't, it would be a sad enough ending for a person who was once called America's mayor for the leadership he showed. And the days immediately after September 11th,
1: I mean, and and, this is a jail that the feds have looked into. I mean, right. It is a it is a rough place. Right. And, you know, Harry, for me, you know, and we can put up some more of these mug shots. I mean, some of them look more pathetic than others. Jenna Ellis, I guess, decided to do hair and makeup. There she is. Uh, She decided to try to look cute for it. But you can try to look cute all you want. You know, these are attorneys, Harry. These are people who went to law school. I can only imagine how proud their parents were when they got those law degrees and for them now to be Defendants, it, it is something that is so sobering that I wonder if, if you know, for you as a prosecutor, if, if you can foresee some of these people rethinking how hard they're going to fight for Donald Trump's reality because Donald Trump's not going to fight for theirs. They, he's going to throw every single one of them. He's already said it's it was Eastman's idea. It's you know it's easy for him to say, no, that was Cheeseboro's idea. That was Eastman's idea. He doesn't care about these people. So I wonder if you've experienced when people finally have that moment where they're taking that picture, there's the Kraken lady, um, that they say, you know what? Yeah, this ain't worth it. I'm going to try to help myself and not help Trump.
2: That's it exactly, and I'll add to humbling and humiliating and sobering terrifying. You take a step into that kind of booking um, environment and you contemplate that being your residence, maybe for the rest of your life, it focuses the mind on your own self-interest right quick. So we're seeing that already. This is a very sort of dynamic time in the Fulton County um, proceedings themselves, Joy, in which Ken Chesbro. Uh, Jeff Clark, Mark Meadows, David Schaefer have all made efforts to one way or another get themselves out of it in, and other than just towing the line for Donald Trump. So for Trump, it's a very dangerous time. And you add to that, that for most of them, they don't have the money to, for the uh, exorbitant bills of defending themselves and Trump isn't giving it to them he, more than anybody, is at risk over the next couple weeks of having people show up to Fulton County and say, okay, I've got some things to tell you, and they're about the former president, let's make a deal.
1: Yeah, and by the way, I, I will know, and we'll, we'll go through, we will tell you, some, some people, we don't know what they looked like before we've seen them in the mugshot. For your first right. time, really, for people to know what you look like, for that to be your image, you know, it's it's pathetic. You know, the the Eastman one is particularly pathetic. I, I will note, um, Lisa that, so Mark Meadows tried to make this not happen. Yep. He, he tried to go to, the, you know, so did Jeffrey Clark, the former justice department official. They were like, don't let this be me. I don't want to be arrested and take this shot." A judge said, sorry. No. Uh, Meadows' uh, motion was immediately he wanted to remove his case to federal court, prevent his arrest until after the evidentiary hearing on August twenty eighth. Uh, the judge said no. Clark's motion was to stay the proceedings and stave off his arrest while he tried to send the case to federal court as well. Judge also said, sorry, no, they're going to have to go through that indignity, too.
4: Yeah, they are. They're both going to have to be arrested. And, you know, Joy, it's not Katie Turner and I were talking about this earlier today. Being booked is not like going on an airplane ride where there's one line for the special customers and one line for everybody else who's seated at the back of the plane. It's more like showing up in an emergency room. And you get to see whatever presents itself at the jail that day. If there are a cacophony of other defendants who are there, you wait in that line with everybody else. And Harry is right. It is a harrowing journey from start to finish. I wonder how much time Rudy Giuliani spent at the MDC, the Metropolitan detention center in downtown Manhattan when he was the U.S. attorney there, but that itself is a facility that was so bad that it was shut down. Now he's getting to see the inside of conditions
1: where he has himself placed people before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, let's bring in Luke Broadwater, uh, the New York Times congressional uh, reporter. Luke, I-, I wonder if there is any reporting on kind of the ramifications beyond what we saw today. Uh, we know that uh, Donald Trump is throwing a hundred thousand dollar ahead fundraiser for Rudy Giuliani, which is probably smart. Where he wants to keep him on side, uh, because if he decides that he's no longer standing with Trump, he would probably have a lot to say. But are there any reverberations from Eastman world, from Jenna Ellis world, from people who uh, might be getting a little shaky after their experience in Fulton County today?
5: Well both Eastman and Jenna Ellis say they're going to fight the uh charges, um, and they're you know condemning the the prosecutors. But Jenna Ellis has also complained about Donald Trump not paying her legal legal bills, and she's been quite outspoken about that. Rudy Giuliani was trying for months and months to get Donald Trump to pay his legal bills. He had wanted something like twenty thousand dollars a month, and Trump had essentially refused to pay him despite in treaty after in treaty to try to get these legal bills paid and finally now when he showed up at, at the jail uh is donald trump saying he's now going to try to help him with the legal bills that's in stark contrast to some of these other lawyers you know donald trump was paid millions of dollars to other attorneys who i think he valued more or thought could help him more he had sort of thrown rudy away it seemed and i think that does present a risk uh you know, when you're talking about trying to get co-defendants to testify or to provide evidence to the prosecution.
1: I do believe one of the mugshots that we've gotten today is the woman who uh, was running the Coffee County Election Office and allowed people to uh, uh, get into the machines there. Uh, she had a GoFundMe. We reported on it yesterday. She was trying to raise $75,000 for her bail. Uh, she had only hit 5000 I believe that is her right there. Um, she'd only raised $5,000 as of yesterday. And, Harry- We've got this uh, footage, I do believe, of Giuliani walking into the bail bondsman's office, uh, which, again, humbling experience. There he is. Um, He's probably sent a lot of people, as Lisa pointed out, to have to do the same thing. Uh, This is a man who's been brought low. Uh, The only person who I think could be brought even lower experiencing this would be Donald Trump himself.
2: It's really true. You know, I've been to jails as U.S. attorney. When you go as a defendant, the, the smell, the noise, the whole feel of it, 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 they really are, you know, hellish, especially the, the Rice Street Jail, as Lisa says. But to the, to the general point now about how the interests are diverging. So David Schaefer, who is the, the one of the Georgia electors, Uh, He actually came out and said, oh we were we were ordered to do this by the Trump team. I mean, you see divergence of interest. It's not simply that they're thinking of saving themselves, but they're doing it at the expense of Trump, which is what they understandably think Fulton County is looking for. So it's going to be hard to know the individual strategies of everyone, but it points in a very favorable dynamic for this. is this is how you make cases. This is where prosecutors want to be with everyone scared and looking, and by the way, they tell them, you better come in soon, because if not, somebody else will, uh, to, to make cases against higher-ups, and it doesn't get any higher, just as you say, uh, even in bail. Giuliani, 150. Eastman Chesbro 100. Donald Trump, 200. There you go. That's obviously some loose uh, estimation of their overall guilt.
1: Yeah. And Luke, you know, there is some evidence that you're starting to see people, uh, you know, starting to fray at the edges uh, of Trump world. We've already seen the IT guy, Usil uh, Tavara, who got his own lawyer. He actually is using a federal um, uh, pro bono lawyer, right? And he is said, you know, you know what he flipped And so you're starting to see there are people flipping. And that is, of course, in the documents case where Donald Trump's co-defendants, they've got them dead to rights. They've got them on tape. Um, They've got them on tape trying to both hide the you know surveillance video uh, and moving the boxes. I can't imagine how they're still sticking by Donald Trump. So he's facing multiple cases in which he doesn't have the same interests, Luke, as his co-defendants. And I wonder if Trump world is starting to worry that he can't hold all of these people in multiple cases to stick with him till the end.
5: Well, I think it's almost inevitable that he he won't be able to. I mean, if you look at uh, a pattern of the various investigations that have happened after January 6th, you do see instances, (laughs) including even in the congressional investigation, where Uh, A witness such as Cassidy Hutchinson will get a new attorney and then become much more forthcoming. And that's exactly what we saw in the documents case where the prosecutors now say witnesses have uh, changed their previous statements and and corrected false statements, provided now uh, more incriminating evidence. And if you look at uh, Fannie Willis's. Other racketeering cases now related to January 6th, those also have started with a bunch of defendants, gotten a bunch of guilty pleas, and then ended with the more serious targets. And I would suspect that's where this is headed.
1: Uh, let's talk about the how quickly these trials are going go, uh, to go actually to court. Um There is this sort of speedy trial idea, right? And Donald Trump doesn't seem to want one. (laughs) He wants the trial to be basically never. He's like, just push it off and push it off and push it off. Kenneth Cheeseborough, let's put back up his mugshot. Kenneth Cheeseborough has now uh, tried the tactic of saying he does want a speedy trial. He's now demanded a speedy trial. Under Georgia's speedy trial rules, Cheeseborough's case would have to likely be tried by the end of October, or he could simply be acquitted of the charges if he doesn't get the speedy trial he's looking for. What do you make of that tactic?
4: Well, you you know, Harry was talking earlier about people who have different interests pointing the fingers at each other. Yeah. And that's equally true of the process and the timing, too. You've got Kenneth Cheesebro, who on one hand is demanding to go to trial by October, and then you've got a series of other defendants who want to remove this case to federal court, not only because the jury pool could be more advantageous for them, but because the timing could be too. And one of the additional complicating factors, Joy, is that under the federal removal law, it's largely thought that if one defendant removes a case, it doesn't just affect them, it ref- it affects all all of the defendants right. in that criminal prosecution. So we have a hearing on Mark Meadows' motion to remove the case to federal court on Monday. How that intersects with Cheeseborough's motion under Georgia law for a speedy trial in October, nobody quite understands. Yeah. But it is what we would call a mess. (laughs) It is a mess. And Harry,
1: let's just you know dream with me for just a moment. Let's just say Cheeseborough gets a speedy trial. He goes to trial in October. His case is wrapped up. And let's say he's convicted uh, of what he was accused of. How might that affect Jack Smith's case? Because he figures as the mastermind we now have seen of the whole fake elector scheme. There's his mugshot. If he gets convicted in this Georgia case, how does that affect the federal case?
2: Look, he is co-conspirator number five, and I think all six of the co-conspirators are are waiting to be charged and he is one of them. But, but the, what he's effectively doing in, in Georgia is saying, I want to separate out myself from this other, you know, the rest of the gaggle of crackpot lawyers, to quote the the, the, the most memorable quote in Mike Pence's history. Uh, and I, I want to go separately, and this is the better way, I think, to do it than making a motion to sever, which Fonnie Willis could push back against. It's It takes. It's a real roll of the dice. He's saying, you know, I'll bet that I can be ready to go uh, come early November and you can't be. But it would be quite an event if if in fact. He is convicted. Everything that happens at that trial, everything he says, it's going to be admissible at a, at a federal trial as well. It's one of the many ways in which the dovetailing of the two trials uh, begin to you know, really take on synergy and steam.
1: Yeah. And if I'm uh, John Eastman and uh, Sidney Powell, I'm looking in terror at what happens with that, because as go yeah. goes Cheeseborough, probably uh, they go as well. They're all part of the same scheme. What a time to be alive. Harry Whitman, Luke Broadwater, Lisa Rubin, thank you all uh, for going through this all with us. Appreciate it. Up next on The Readout, just two months after leading a mutiny against Vladimir Putin, the boss of the Wagner Group is listed as one of the passengers on a plane that crashed near Moscow today, killing everyone on board. What a news day. The Readout continues after this.
6: and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future.
1: Yevgeny Prigozhin is believed to be dead in Russia exactly two months after he mounted a short-lived armed mutiny against Russia's military leadership. The mercenary chief was listed as a passenger on a plane that crashed north of Moscow today, killing all 10 people on board, including three pilots and seven passengers. The remains of all 10 people aboard the crashed jet have been found, according to Russian state media. NBC News has not confirmed the reporting. President Biden reacted to the news this afternoon.
0: Do you believe Putin is behind us, sir? There's not much that happens when Russia is not behind, I don't know enough to know the answer.
1: Prigozhin's rebellion posed the most serious threat to Putin's 23 year rule. This is video of Prigozhin released on Monday, appearing to give his first video address since the mutiny that shook the Kremlin. Last month, Secretary of State Antony Blinken issued a warning about Prigozhin's fate.
0: If I were Mr. Prigozhin, I would remain very concerned. Um, NATO has an open door policy, Russia has an open windows policy, and he needs to be very focused on that.
1: Joining me now is Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia and MSNBC international affairs analyst and John Brennan, former CIA director and MSNBC senior national security and intelligence analyst. Ambassador McFall, this seems like the least surprising news uh, of all. To me, the only thing that was a surprise is that this man was still anywhere near Russia <laughs> or in Russia. What do you make of the news uh, that of his apparent uh, death?
0: Well, it's not surprising. You're right. We talked about it months ago, and I wrote about it, that that everybody thought that Putin would exact revenge at a certain point. There are some questions, though, Joy. Uh, Why was Prigozhin allowed to be in Russia? Why did Prigozhin show up at the African summit that Putin had? He had parallel meetings with African leaders. That's a weird way to treat a traitor. And why did they choose this particular way to assassinate him, if indeed they did? Why didn't they arrest him? Why didn't they— There are other ways that he could have dealt with them. So there's still a lot of strange questions about the nature of why this happened the way it did, but no uh, ambiguity that Putin was going to do this at some point in the future. He did it today.
1: And, Dr. Brennan, what questions do you have? Because it it, it is— it is strange to me. I think everyone expected after that attempted the sort of coup attempt um, that also seemed strange that if you were going to try it and you didn't go all the way, you'd think you'd then disappear. You know, he had obviously connections on the African continent. Uh, the Wagner group has been very active there. Uh, you know, the idea that he didn't just go there or go to Belarus or do anything other than go back to Russia does seem strange. And, and the idea that Putin would forgive him and somehow let him back into his inner circle, just did not ever seem credible. What do you make of these events?
7: Well, I certainly agree with uh, Mike. Um, it's unsurprising that uh, Prigozhin was going to uh, be the target of uh, Putin's wrath, because uh, once he aborted that mutiny, and what was apparent, appeared to be a, almost a coup, that he was living on borrowed time. And so maybe Putin was allowing him to feel this false sense of confidence and security uh, and had him do some things. But I, I do think that Putin was waiting because at the time of the mutiny, the situation was very, very unsettled and i think that uh, putin did not know exactly who was in league with with uh, prigozhin and so he was trying to make sure that he was able to take steps to shore up his his military support and loyalist in the new armed forces and so he has sacked a number of generals over the past couple of months, uh, and so I think he felt confident now. Uh, whether Prigozhin was on that plane uh, alive uh, is, a, is a question. Maybe he was was killed uh, even before he got his remains were put on that plane. But I, I do think this was uh, Putin's way to demonstrate very, very publicly, uh, visibly, uh, that uh, uh, traitors are not going to be forgiven, uh, even a person like Prigozhin. and it's clear that the way that uh, aircraft was Spiraling down to Earth, uh, it was either taken down by a missile, or there was some type of you know catastrophic explosion on the plane, like an, an improvised explosive device. But uh, clearly, uh, it would be a remarkable coincidence if uh, this was not something that uh, Putin had uh, designed himself.
1: <laughs> it, it does seem that clear that you know while Putin can't uh, subdue Ukraine, clearly he can still kill uh, kill Russians right at will. And you know, Ambassador McFall, let, let, let me just read you what Svitlana uh, Sikhanouskaya, I'm pronouncing her name. Correctly, he so was a Belarusian opposition politician uh, and the primary rival to the current Russia-aligned president, um, Alexander Lukashenko. This is what she tweeted. Um, the criminal Prigozhin won't be missed in Belarus. He was a murderer and should be remembered as such. His death might dismantle Wagner's presence in Belarus, reducing the threat to our nation and neighbors. No one should trust Lukashenko's security guarantees or any of his deals. How, how do you think... If he is, in fact, uh, gone, uh, it does impact Belarus. But also, you know, Wagner is very active on the African continent as well. What do you think the impact of his death, if it is confirmed, would be?
0: Well, I agree with Svetlana Tsikhanovsky. This is good news for Belarus. It's also good news for Ukraine. Uh, this guy was a killer. He killed a lot of Ukrainians. His forces killed a lot of Ukrainians. And everybody in Kiev is happy that he's gone. Uh, Africa is more complicated. That's a uh, it's a great question. Um, it's confusing to me that he was allowed to go back. He just allegedly was there yesterday. Again, as I said earlier, he was meeting with African leaders when Putin had his summit with leaders in St. Petersburg. And so it's not clear to me how Putin and the FSB and the Russian military will take over the Wagner forces that do play uh, a critical role for the Russian government. Let's be really clear. They're a mercenary organization, but they're 100 percent funded by the Russian government. And what you're seeing on telegram channels today are Wagner forces saying, you know, they're seeking revenge. They don't like the fact that their leader and other leaders, by the way, it sounds like the entire leadership was taken out. How do you now uh, gain control of that organization or just do you just take it off the field? I would hope it'd be the latter because Wagner does a lot of bad things in Africa. It would be great if they withdrew from Africa as well.
1: Uh, And Dr. Brennan, how does this impact uh, our interests, uh, U.S. interests? Because this does make Putin look stronger. It makes it look that he is less, you know, unstable, as we might have believed that the failure in Ukraine has made him. Um, But how does it impact his leadership, our interests, NATO's interests, etc.?
7: Well, I think, as as Mike said, we're, we're going to see how the Wagner forces react to this. And I think there's still a fair amount of uncertainty as far as how Putin is going to be able to manage the competing interests that I think that the, the broader Russian environment uh, he, he has to deal with. So I, I think he's determined to continue to fight uh, the conventional battle on in, in Ukraine. Uh, he's hoping that he's going to be able to outlast uh, the NATO and U.S. support. Uh, but I think we still are going to see a number of different chapters uh, in the coming months, as far as the internal Russian situation, as well as the battlefield in Ukraine.
1: Yeah, it is. It is interesting because it seemed like the Wagner group, they're vicious, but at least they seemed more capable than the Russian forces. They're sort of Russian ordinary troops. So it is it is a strange world that we're living in. But we shall see what happens. Uh, Michael McFall and John Brennan, thank you both very much. Up next, the race for second place. Looking ahead to tonight's Republican primary debate, which the Trump campaign says, well, he's already won despite him not even being there. We'll be right back.
8: For the love of home.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
8: Well, we are just a couple hours
1: away from the first Republican presidential debate. Oh, goody. But according to Trump, he's already won. So never mind, Republicans. No, seriously, though, tonight we we get a chance to see just how committed the Republican Party is to turning the country into a totalitarian autocracy. So far, what we've seen from these candidates is continued 2020 denialism, 9-11 denialism, and manufactured mass woke mind virus hysteria. Oh, yeah, and Hunter Biden, because... According to Republicans, apparently he's running for president. Of course, there are opportunities for these candidates to make their mark, but that would require a willingness to go after the guy who isn't there. And so far, only two of the eight have shown any desire to do more than just be the proverbial listless vessels. Joining me now is David Jolly, former Florida congressman and MSNBC political analyst. And every time I see you and run into you, I cannot believe you ever were a Florida politician because you are so coherent. (laughs) A Florida Republican. I don't don't even know how you fit. There's no way you fit in with that party. Um, But no, but you're, you're not the only sort of normie Florida Republican that I know. And all the normal. I just said this off camera. I'll say it on camera that the Republicans that I know in Florida all yeah. say they are shocked. DeSantis has gotten this far because he doesn't have the personality sure. of what you would normally have for be a presidential candidate. And he is going to be the target tonight. He is. going to be How do target. you think he will hold up?
3: So, look, his first race in Florida was very close. His second one, he won by 19 points coming yeah. out of covid and culture wars and frankly, a kind of crippled Florida Democratic Party. Absolutely. Right. So he is now number two. But the expectations have been so high that he's just been dropping for months and months and months. So if you're any candidate on that stage but DeSantis, you don't get ahead tonight by attacking Donald Trump. You get ahead by attacking Ron DeSantis. And in many ways, Joy, this could be make or break for Ron DeSantis because the expectations are so high. His own words on the eighth day, God created Ron DeSantis. did that. God, what do you have for us? Because (laughs) if you come up short tonight... Brahmaswamy, Scott, somebody else could be overtaking. And the, the, the reporting
1: is he was livid at the leak of these, you know, sort of campaign talking yeah, points sure. and prescriptions for what he should do tonight. Um, but the reality is he now can't really use the advice that was yeah. in that memo because he will look like a puppet. And so it's like if he does use the advice, he looks silly. But if he yeah. doesn't, I'm not sure what else he could possibly do
3: which sets up a Chris Christie attack right out of the yeah. gate, right? But yeah. so look, the first an indictment of our campaign finance system that we let these super PACs create this memos that the Canada can't see and they have to grab them off the internet. Also an indictment of Ron DeSantis's core message. The the memo said attack Joe Biden in the media more times right. than offering your vision for the future of the country, <laughs> right? And and say woke and Hunter Biden. Yeah. And so you're exactly right. If he follows that script, look for Chris Christie or somebody to come in with a haymaker saying you don't have an Independent thought in your head. Yeah. You are following your super PAC. And look, you can challenge him on a very amorphous ideological career from being a libertarian freedom caucus guy Mm -hmm. to a cultural populist under Donald Trump to a big government conservative now as Florida's chief executive hammering Disney and rewriting curriculum. There is so much to hit DeSantis on. I worry, though, that the other candidates are going to be so focused on the Trump complex that they're not going to get out from underneath that to actually have a real debate among
1: the candidates that are on the stage. The goal is supposed to be to replace DeSantis as number two and try to eventually get to number one. But you'll see if they do it. You mentioned Chris Christie. Let's play him talking about the debate. This is what he's had to say.
0: I hardly think the race is over. Um, you know, uh, this is not the Yogi Berra school of uh, political philosophy. Uh, it isn't getting late early. Um, and so we're going to let this play out. Uh, and I think the big loser in tomorrow night's debate has already been determined. And it's Donald Trump, because he didn't have the guts or the respect to show up on that stage and governor, defend his record governor, and advocate governor. for the future of America.
1: Now, now, we know that this is going to be a Republican audience. Yeah. If Chris Christie says that tonight, he'll get, booed. he'll get booed. Does that help him, though? Because outside of there, there are still, I'm sure, some sort of sure. Republicans out there in the world, maybe 10 percent of them, I don't know, who are like, please, we want someone besides Trump. Does he win any points if he does that on stage tonight?
3: I don't think tonight. Look, the the strategy is a long one. The governor's right. And there's a sequence to it. You only get to take on Donald Trump if you overtake Ron DeSantis. If you go after Donald Trump tonight, as Christie and Hutchinson and others have said, you likely get booed and you don't move in the polls and you don't hurt DeSantis. We have five months until the Iowa caucus. Your goal right now is to overtake Ron DeSantis, and then baked into all candidate strategy is that somewhere Donald Trump is going to so injure himself that he'll start to fall. We haven't seen that moment, yeah. but that's simply in the strategy of everybody on stage. I tonight.
1: mean, they're, they're probably going to be selling you know Trump faux mugshot T-shirts outside <laughs> of the thing. So let's talk about the other sort of oddest candidate, Ramaswamy, yeah. who's you know got a sort of boomlet among the media, uh, but he's also you know the candidate who's trying to be like a rapper and play on black. Court. Culture, yeah. but doesn't seem to particularly like black people. He said the weirdest thing about 9-11. Let me yeah. just play it. He's trying to defend himself on it. Here it is.
0: Look, well, there's a difference between entrapment and the difference between a law enforcement
9: agent I, I, identifying I think, it. I, think I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Like, I think we it. maybe the answer is zero. Probably a zero, for all I know, right? I have no reason to think it was anything other than zero. But if we're doing a comprehensive assessment of what happened on 9-11, we have a 9-11 commission, absolutely,
1: that should be an answer the public knows the answer to. Way to leave yourself open to, even Mike Pence could beat him up on that. Like, that is such an odd thing to say on tape if you're running for president. What is happening with this guy?
3: The only thing this field was missing was a 9-11 conspiracy theorist. And we just and got is. it.
1: <laughs> <And there he laughs> just is. in time,
3: right? And, and, and look, Chris Christie, I believe his wife was down at the Twin Towers that day. And Christie's told a story how he didn't know if his wife was alive. Yeah. So watch out on this, Ramaswamy. Now, the yeah. interesting thing is, do Republican voters care? Probably not, because the amount of crazy on that stage tonight is already, yeah. you know, at a high def level. The reality is America gets to see Ramaswamy for the first time tonight, the North Dakota governor for the first time. Those yeah. are kind of the two that people don't know sure. right now. So we'll see. At some point tonight, there may be a star yeah. or there may be somebody whose star fades quickly. yeah, And Ramaswamy could be
1: either. I have to ask another person since I've got, you know, got my Florida friend here. Why did DeSantis add the guy who referred to women as host bodies as his new national spokesperson, the former speaker of the Florida House, Jose Oliva? Why? Why is he on his campaign? Host
3: bodies. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, we face this with Donald Trump as well. How much of it is tactic and strategy of playing to this crazy right wing and how much of it is personal ethos? And I think we all get to make a judgment. But I think on issues of race, gender, immigrants, all of these hard cultural issues, it's OK to assign personal biases to Ron DeSantis and say, this is your ethos. This is who you are. And the people you, res- you surround yourself with reflect who you are. I think that's a judgment everybody gets to make. I think it's a personal a personal belief system of Ron yeah. DeSantis. It,
1: it, it leaves it open for, you know, Gillum had this moment where he yeah. said, I don't think he's, I'm not saying he's a racist, but the racists think he's, think. he That's had right. a lot of lines like that. The host body thing leaves it open. Saying, you know, I'm not saying that he doesn't respect women. I'm just saying that people who don't respect women think he (laughs) doesn't respect women. He thinks they're host (laughs) bodies. What? Leaving yourself open. David Jolly, thank you very much. It's going to be fascinating. All right. Up next, a new expose reveals some alarming facts about Elon Musk, including concerns about his use of prescription and over-the-counter pharmaceuticals. We will talk to the author of that expose, Ronan Farrow, when he joins me next. We have all had a front row seat to Elon Musk going off the rails this year as he continues to drive the site formerly known as Twitter into the ground. It's been a dangerous game to watch with someone so volatile in charge of a major source of information and political discourse. But his influence on U.S. policy goes far beyond that, ranging from space to energy to even funding Ukrainian soldiers' access to the Internet. As Ronan Fowler reports in The New Yorker, there is little precedent for a civilian becoming the arbiter of a war between nations in such a granular way, or for the degree of dependency that the U.S. now has on Musk in a variety of fields. In the past 20 years, against a backdrop of crumbling infrastructure and declining trust in institutions, Musk has sought out business opportunities in crucial areas where, after decades of privatization, the state has receded. The government is now reliant on him, but struggles to respond to his risk-taking, brinksmanship, and caprice. Ronan Farrow, investigative reporter and contributing writer for The New Yorker, joins me now. And uh, Ronan, so great to see it's you. It's
9: always a pleasure, Joy.
1: Uh, even though you just scared the hell out of me with this piece. I'm sorry. <laughs> well,
9: and I love you for reading that whole long tract because it, we were talking about this in the break. This is a piece that is about those big themes, not just the scoop. So I, I really appreciate your highlighting that in the top. Well, well
1: this, the startling thing is particularly frightening. OK, so this is, you know, essentially he controls the access to the Internet that Ukraine depends on to survive in, a, in the midst of a war. And he seems to be becoming pro-Putin and against continuing to help. Why is the United States government dependent on him for that? Why is Ukraine dependent on him?
9: As in so many of the areas I write about in this piece the answer embodies a mix of pros and cons that it plays out across this story. You have the pro of Elon Musk identifying in a really canny way an area of government underinvestment and right. getting there first and putting his personal resources into it and bringing his no holds barred uh, progress at any cost. Uh, risks to human lives, his own and those of others be damned philosophy to it. And in the case of Starlink, his satellite system, that is, as you say, providing the backbone of communication in Ukraine as they need that communication for both civilian and military purposes to literally coordinate and defend themselves. Uh, He did get there first on this kind of private satellite business model, uh, and this kind of mobile station to connect to that network. And, you know, I I talked to NASA officials who warned that we're going to see even more dependence on him in this area because he's filled so many of the orbits of the Earth with his satellites that he is just going to be an ongoing, if you'll forgive the phrase, center of gravity in this world.
1: Let let me read the scariest line. I'm going to read the scariest line in the whole piece. SpaceX is currently the sole means by which NASA transports crew from U.S. soil into space. And then you name a bunch of other agencies which you could go on uh, the, you know, the, the Federal Aviation Administration, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and on and on. Even the chargers that the Biden administration is depending on for this electric car, it's all him.
9: Yeah, he has 60% of the charging stations for electric vehicles in this country right now. So any green energy policy is going to have to revolve around and and work with him in significant ways. None of this is black and white and simple. There are competitors in all these spaces. NASA is saying, look, we're trying and we hope in a year Boeing is going to be able to do some of these things. But historians told me this state of affairs where we're sort of scrambling and trying to find any alternatives at all in yeah. so many areas with respect to one person, that's new.
1: And is he stable? Because you talk about ketamine here, you talk about some behavior, you know, talk, telling his wife, I'm the alpha and not that le- marriage not lasting long. Is he stable?
9: Well, you know, while I think the bigger warnings in this story are about the systems of modern capitalism that concentrate so much power and wealth in so few. There's also a, a fair set of warnings about Elon Musk that some people close to him are sounding. And in a way, he is a perfect illustration of those bigger themes, Joy, because there is so much to be said about the ways in which he has pushed progress meaningfully, and we have benefited from that. But also, he is a figure that makes it difficult to rely on him. He is subject to erratic turns. We have seen him slip into political radicalism uh, in a way that... You know, I think people fairly find hurtful and destructive to other human beings. His own daughter is a, a, a trans individual, and he has really descended hard into anti-trans sentiment on Twitter. That's just one of many examples. He's spreading a lot of misinformation. He is trolling people in a way that is very rooted in alt-right vernacular, calling people pedophiles all the time. Yeah. So, so you, you take a guy with this much power who is talking openly about his sadness, his isolation, his loneliness, uh, who is, as you say um, you know, known and reported to be using a variety of different substances that can contribute to eroticism, even though I should caution, many of those can also be used in healthy, medically sure. prescribed ways, uh there are people around them who are concerned. And then we as a nation, and indeed as a world, have to be concerned because Wars depend on him. Yeah. Major policies depend on him.
1: The, the thing I think that is the bigger picture, and I want to come back to that because I think it's an important point you make, you know, this country has been through periods where we've over depended on very rich men to fund the government, to do things the government should be doing. How many other Elon Musks are controlling a lot of our what should be government functions? I'm glad that you mentioned that. Because this
9: story about Elon Musk, like most of the stories I'm drawn to, is not about one person. Right. You're absolutely right. There is a billionaire set right now of hyper-wealthy individuals who are less prominent than Musk. And because they are less colorful, they are pulling the strings in all sorts of significant ways. Now, Elon Musk is unique in the number of industries that he has this influence over and presents unique problems. Yeah. But you're right to highlight he's not alone.
1: Uh, Scary stuff, but... I really recommend everyone read this. Uh, Ronan Farrow, thank you Thanks, for Troy. the great work that you do. It's so important in letting us in on the scary stuff. We need to know. Scaring is scary. I got you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll be right back. We'll be right back. <laughs> Oh, it's not over. I'll be back at 11 p.m. Eastern with Rachel Maddow and Nicole Wallace for an analysis of tonight's Republican debate, the first of the 2024 presidential campaign. And tomorrow night, my pals and I will be here for special live coverage beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern, as Donald Trump is expected to surrender at the Fulton County Jail on charges in the Georgia election interference case. Yeah, that's happening tomorrow. And that is tonight's readout.